Welcome to Days of Roar, our Detroit Tiger podcast, brought to you by the Detroit Free Press. My name is Mark Gorash. I am here with Free Press beat writer Evan Petzold on a sad, sad Sunday night. We're not going to get into it too much. It's sad enough sitting all by itself. How you doing there, man? Yeah, in case people didn't get the memo, the Lions lost, so that's a bummer. But no, man, other than that, it's been an interesting Sunday. Cole Key signed a contract extension. The Lions played in the NFC Championship game. Yeah, busy day in Detroit sports. Busy day. Now at 31 years. Now at actually 66 years. 66 years since Lions have won a title. Hope they're back next year. Like had a... A lot of fun this year. I'm sure you had a lot of fun this year, didn't you? Yeah, it was fun watching, especially, you know, as things kind of got heated up, you know, talking to my dad through all of it. That's just been like an awesome experience for me, something that I hope that one day I can share with my kids. You know, like when you kind of have that relationship and you're able to talk sports and you're kind of on that same level, to be able to do that with my kids one day is going to be really special, but I'm definitely soaking it all in. Yeah, it's disappointing. Has a little bit of a feel like 2013 on it, although I think 2013, the Tigers actually had a better baseball team than the Lions had a football team this year. But yeah, it's always disappointing when you get so damn close and you think you got a great shot and you come up a little bit short. So we'll kind of let that marinate. We have all week to drown ourselves in our sorrows. We have some fun stuff on tap for tonight. We're going to talk about Cole Keith, what it means, what it means for the future. And as part of the big two, we're going to insert a really great interview that you came up on. Why don't you tell everybody about what it is? Yeah, awesome chance to talk to Alex Avila, former Tigers catcher, 13-year catcher in the big leagues. Got to dig into the four Hall of Fame electees, Jim Leland, obviously a former Tigers manager, Adrian Beltre, Todd Helton, and then Joe Maurer as well. So Alex Avila had a ton of insights into Leland, of course, then also, you know, being an opponent of Maurer growing up and watching Todd Helton, and then also being a competitor against Adrian Beltre. And, you know, Adrian Beltre, one of the players that his grandfather signed with the Dodgers. So some interesting conversations there to kind of, you know, put a bow on, you know, all the Hall of Fame stuff. Leland obviously got elected back in December, and then now just recently, uh, Beltre, Helton, and Maurer are going to be going in with Jim Leland. I'm curious, before we get to who got in this year, it wouldn't shock me if at one point in time in the future that Evan Petzold may earn the right to vote for Hall of Famers. You think that's a possibility or no? Yeah, the clock's got to keep ticking. That's all that it is. So once I'm around for long enough, that will be something I'm going to be doing. You got a feeling or have you, I mean, which, which, you ever been to the Hall of Fame? I have never been to Cooperstown. Okay. It's, you know, I've talked to, you know, Henning's obviously voted for years and I've had long talks with him about it. I've been there. I spent a week there in Cooperstown, because if you have a baseball playing child you know, that plays elite travel, they go there when they're 12 years old and they spend a week there and they live in dorms and you live in a house and you get to hang out in Cooperstown. But what is interesting is everybody has a different take on the Hall of Fame. I think, you know, the Baseball Hall of Fame has some of the most stringent, unusual voting rules, how people are put in, who you know, what they think of it 
as a museum. They treat it more like a country club than placeholder of the history of the game in some ways. I was just curious if you had any thoughts on that. Have you developed any? Are you getting a feel for it or you want to save it for another time? Yeah, I probably should go and check it out first before I have any real comments on what Cooperstown is like. But no, man, look, I mean, this podcast, we got to get to it, man. Cole Keefe, like, that's the real deal. I mean, this guy signing the contract extension, you know, that happened on Sunday morning, six-year deal, takes him through the 2029 season with club options for 2030, 2031, and 2032. Contract's going to be worth $82 million over nine seasons if all the options are escalated and exercised. But at the very least, Cole Keith is guaranteed to make $28.6 million over the next six years. Yeah, I'm happy the young man has decided that he'll take short-term security. I'm not sure it's lifetime security, but security in exchange for basically giving away tens of millions of dollars in upside in his career that could not allow him to negotiate again as a free agent until he's the age of 31. He will play this season at the age of 22. I'm curious what your thoughts are. I mean, I'd like to get into some of the minutia of what he did and what he didn't do about money, and then we can later on discuss, you know, why or will it happen for other people players on the team, but I'm just curious about your thoughts. Yeah, general thoughts here. Obviously, kind of you laid it out, the way in which Cole Keith is obviously banking on the security. He's taking the security, you know, as opposed to maybe the greater financial payout if you were to go through the regular process of, you know, three years on the minimum salary, three years as a salary arbitration eligible player, and then now he's a free agent, and he's a free agent before age 30, and maybe he's signing, you know, a long-term contract worth, you know, over $200 million, right? Like we've seen a lot of guys do that. But if the Tigers pick up the three options after the six years, it's a nine-year deal. And Cole Keith isn't going to become a free agent until November of 2032 when he's 31 years old. By that point, his performance, his health could be on the decline coming out of his prime. Or, you know, you never know, he could be gearing up for another long-term contract with an even bigger payout. But, you know, getting a big payout at 31, seems like a lot less likely than getting a big payout at 29, right? And so I think that's something that we got to keep in mind. Nobody can predict the future, so we'll see how it all goes. I do think from the conversations that I've had with Cole Keith's agent, Matt Paul, who negotiated some of the contract, health did play a role in this. We have to remember Colt Keith had a shoulder injury. He has been hurt. He tweaked the shoulder again. So this guy's going to have to try to stay healthy if he wanted to try to make it through those six years to get to free agency. So now he's got a chance, even if he gets hurt, if he goes out opening day roster and, you know, he hurts his arm, he hurts something else, and it's just kind of like a continuous, you know, string of injuries, he's still going to get paid his, you know, $28.6 million. So he has guaranteed himself some security. And it's interesting. That's something that Cole Keith has been working on this offseason. He's been taking steps to try to prepare his body for a long career, knowing that he's got that stockier build. He's basically all muscle not very agile, doesn't really have the quick twitch, but he's trying to get there to develop that more. And really what it's coming down to is wanting more longevity, wanting to be confident in being able to play, you know, 10 to 15 years and being able to play in the middle of the infield. So he's been working with a physical therapist, Robbie Ellis, this offseason. And it's more than just, hey, let's work on physical therapy for the labrum in his right shoulder. It's 
injury prevention for the entire body, focused on mobility, flexibility, reins of motion. Those are all things that Cole Keith is working on this offseason because he knows that he needs to stay healthy, which I do think is somewhat of a concern considering his build if we're really going to look at it you know, with such a detailed focus. I mean, again, we're looking at it and, and, and trying to answer like a, you know, 26 to, or excuse me, a, a 28 to $82 million question. Health definitely plays a factor here. So he's going to have to stay healthy. And that's the biggest risk for the Tigers at this point, I think. Other than that, though, it's, it's a slam dunk W for the Tigers. It, it, there's no question about it. Like the Tigers, this is a steal. This is a steal. As far as I'm concerned, you know, the way the contract breaks out, Keith makes an extra $6.5 million in the first two years of the deal. Major League minimum is $750,000, dollars You got a $2 million signing bonus, and he got $6 million worth of contract in year one and year two. So we got, yeah, I think that's what he got. So He's making an extra $6.5 million. Year three is $4 million, which is probably a little over what he may stand to make in year three. We had a similar discussion with Casey Mize, correct? So year four, though, making $4 million is if Cole Keith performs in any meaningful way, you know, way shape, or form, the Tigers are getting a huge deal. You know, it gets a little, really gets dicey in year six. He's scheduled to make, you know, under $10 million. It, you know, just to give you an example, Nick Castellanos made $10 million in year six of his deal in 2019. So it'll be almost 10 years difference and the money will be pretty parallel. And even if you were to adjust it at a 2.5% rate of inflation, you know, he'd make $13 million just adjusted for inflation. Major League salaries in the first year of the CBA in 2021 went up 11%. So, I mean, the idea that Cole Keith is going to get paid, you know, 10, nine, you know, between $10 million in year six is a massive discount. It's more likely than not if he was good you know, borderline all-star, he'd be getting 14, 16, 18, you know, million dollars in arbitration in that year. Right. Cole Keith, Cole Keith is getting $5 million in year six. It's a, it's, a, it's a slam dunk great deal for the Tigers. That's what it really comes down to. Then it really gets crazy because tell them what he's making in year seven, eight, and nine. Well, those are all club options. So it's up to the Tigers if they're going to want to pick them up or not. Now, if the Tigers want to pick up the first club option, $10 million, if they want to pick up the second club option, $13 million. And if they want to pick up the third club option, that's $15 million. Now, he can earn an additional $18 million in potential escalators on those club options for things like winning MVP, you know, being in the top five in MVP voting, you know, all-star game appearances, those kind of things. But the point is, is that he has three different club options. The Tigers get to make that decision. So if in... Year five, Colt Keith gets injured and it doesn't look like he's going to be able to come back and make a full recovery. The Tigers are on the hook for paying him $5 million in year six, but then they can cut him loose before year seven if they really want to. So ton of flexibility for the Tigers on the club option side of things. Obviously, that's a, a bigger risk for Colt Keith because he's hoping to cash in on those club options, I would have to assume. I mean, again, like that that's where the real money is at in this deal, but that's all in control of the Tigers. So basically, Cole Keith is under team control for nine years. 
is kind of an indentured baseball servant. What what's what's really strange to me is why you know look if you're signing a long term deal like this, any one of these players, they're not signing you to the deal without the expectation of you're going to be really good. And what they're trying to do is buy out the first year or two of arbitration. To buy three of them out and get a player no opt-out is pretty unprecedented, A. B, if you're worried about getting hurt, why are you signing them? It's probably way smarter to not sign them at all. And we'll get into that later in the podcast about some of the other possible you know, discussions about, you know, the Torkelsons, the Greens, the the Jobs, why they haven't been signed already. But the next part I want to bring up to people to give you frame of reference and comparisons, you know, we can compare Cole Keith to a lot of people at this stage of his career from a stylistic standpoint. You know, my two favorites are, are at opposite ends of the spectrum. They, he has a lot of similarities as a performer, not 100% in style, but many similarities to Nicholas Castellanos, okay? Bat first, defensively, challenge potentially, okay? We all thought Nick was defensively challenged. Lots of other people, including writers, did not, but he he was a bat first, 21-year-old, came up quickly, you know, potential offensive force in baseball. The other person I really compare him to when you go back and look in exit velocity, in swing frequency, in side of the play, in minor league accomplishment and hitting and walk rate is Corey Seager. Now, Corey's played shortstop, which totally changed the dynamic, but offensively, a lot of similarity in age and in profile to Colt Keith. So just to give you an example, year seven, Nicholas Castellanos signed a four-year, $64 million contract with the Cincinnati Reds with an opt-out after year one and year two, of which he chose to take the opt-out and, you know, then signed with Philadelphia. But he averaged $16 million a year, even though he didn't earn $16 million a year in the way they structured the contract. But to give you an idea, the AAV value in year seven, in year eight, $16 million. That was for 2020 and 2021. So it'll be almost a decade later for Cole Keith, and you always have to adjust contracts for the time value of money. And money never gets worth less, bro. I mean, it, I mean, inflation is never negative. So, you know, contracts get larger and AAVs get larger in relative value just because inflation makes it that way. And to give you an idea, in the last year of Corey Seager's deal, which he was a shortstop, he made $13.7 million, And then in his first year, year seven, he made $32 million. So when you talk about Colt Keith making, you know, $10 billion in year seven, I just wanted to bring out what the relative value was. Yeah, I mean, like I said, it's a it's a great deal for the Tigers. It's a complete steal, I think, for them. And obviously, Cole Keith is making the decision based on the fact that anything could happen at any time. And, you know, you never know when your career is going to end. And you know what? Everyone is in a different situation and everyone gets to make their own decisions. And, you know, this was obviously a, a choice that Cole Keith was comfortable making. I'm excited to hear a little bit more from him 
in particular about why he made this decision as opposed to waiting. But yeah, I mean, look, I, I again, I go back to what I said before. I do think that health did factor into Keith's decision. I'm going to read the quote from his agent, Matt Paul, right now. Quote, realistically, this is a life and a human being. There is risk involved every time you walk out of your house. He has already been injured once. I think that was something that was a factor in these conversations. It's a 162-game season, so 162 times six years, you have to stay healthy for nearly 1,000 games, end quote. Basically saying that if Colt Keith wants to get a huge contract, he has to stay healthy you know, through six years, essentially, which, again... You can agree with that or you cannot agree with that. I think a guy needs probably one or two good years to really cash in as a free agent. But point is, is yes, like Cole Keith has spent his entire offseason trying to make sure that he can stay healthy and that there can be longevity in his body so he can stay on the field, right? Like, obviously, this is a concern for Colt Keith staying healthy. I'm not saying it is for the Tigers, but for Colt Keith, he's taking steps to try to stay on the field, to try to stay healthy, to try to play a full 162 and to do it at a high level, to make diving plays at second base, to run hard out of the box and turn the corner and and really give it the gas to pull in to second base with a double. He feels like he has to do extra work to get to that point. That's why he's working with a, a physical therapist named Robbie Ellis, who has more than 70,000 followers on Instagram. That's why it's all focused on injury prevention. So, And, and you know what? If he does get hurt, Tigers are only paying $28.6 million over six years, and then they can cut him loose. So like, the risk is not that high for the Tigers. That's why I think this was an awesome deal. Like Scott Harris talked about acquiring, developing, and retaining young players. And that's exactly what he did in this situation. Now, shout out to Al Avila, former general manager, for drafting Cole Keith in the fifth round of the 2020 draft out of high school. But the Tigers have done a really good job. And again, that's Ryan Garko, who was hired by Al Avila, of developing. But then the retaining piece. This is the first sign that we've seen of Scott Harris implementing this, okay, we are going to get young players. We are going to retain them. We are going to lock them up and keep them here. The Braves have done an excellent job of doing that. Alex Anthropoulos, the general manager over there, as good as it gets at locking guys up at a young age. Hopefully this is step one of that. Now we're going to get into more of that. First, we need to dive into this interview that I had with Alex Davila. We're going to get to that in 60 seconds. But once that Alex Davila interview is over, we're going to talk more about who could be next for the Tigers. All right, let's welcome former Tigers catcher Alex Avila, who has played more than 1,000 games in his 13-year MLB career, played for the Tigers from 2009 to 2015. Then again, in 2017, he was a starting catcher for the Tigers' four straight American League Central Championships, making the All-Star team in 2011, working behind the plate for the Cy Young seasons of Justin Verlander in 2011, and Max Scherzer in 2013. Alex, thanks for joining me. It's great to have you. Thanks, Evan. I appreciate you having me. Hey, real quick. I saw on Instagram you were uh, recently fishing with J.D. Martinez, who is one of the players <laughs> who Tigers fans would love to see come back in 2024. I'm not sure it's going to happen. But what's the relationship like with you and him, and who's the better fisherman? Oh, me by far. That's not even close. <laughs> He'd probably try to tell you differently, but that that's part of our, our relationship. But me and J.D. go way back a long time since, since Little League played with and against him. Since we were young kids, he played with and against my brother. I had my cousin as well through Little League and actually played with them in college. I was always just a little bit older, but known JD and his family for forever. And we both enjoy fishing, like to do some offshore and inshore stuff. So every once in a while, we try to get together and do a little fishing. 
That's awesome. So, okay, I want to dig into the Hall of Fame class of 2024. Really happy you can join me for this. Adrian Beltre, mm-hmm. Todd Helton, Joe Maurer, they were all elected to the Baseball Hall of Fame by the Baseball Writers Association of America back in December. Former Tigers manager Jim Leland was elected to the Hall of Fame after getting votes on 15 of the 16 ballots, which is more than the 75% threshold from the Contemporary Era Committee. So it's Beltre, Helton, Maurer, and Leland who are going to be inducted July 21st in Cooperstown, New York. I talked to you when you retired, and here's what you told me. I'm going to quote you here. It was, quote, I played for a future Hall of Fame manager that I'd run through a wall for. I'll forever be grateful for Jim Leland. He's someone I love dearly, end quote. So my first question is, why were you so confident Leland would make his way into the Hall of Fame? Because you called that thing two years ago. Yeah, no, I I fully expected that to happen. Uh, I was hoping it to happen, mainly just because, you know, looking at Jim's career, his baseball life, you know, he is uh, a part of baseball history, and that's what the Hall of Fame does. It preserves that history. Incredibly, by the way, if, uh, if you have never been up there or, or, or get a chance to go to Cooperstown, that is a that, that's a must for any sort of any baseball fan. But I, I just I I had a feeling, gut feeling, obviously playing for Jim for five years that that would happen. That eventually he would get inducted. I mean, I think if we were able to win a World Series and one of those you know playoff teams in Detroit, it probably would have kind of really cemented his overall career. But obviously, he was able to get one in in, in '97 with the Marlins, but. You know, for me, it was a no-brainer. Uh, I thought, you know, he had an incredible career. And obviously, from my quote, there's a lot of his former players, guys that played for him that feel the same way. And I don't know if you'll find somebody in the baseball world that'll say something negative about Skip. That's incredible. Obviously, there are all the numbers, right? You can look at, you know, 3,499 games. You can look at 506 yeah. winning percentage. You can look at the fact that he won the World Series. How about the WBC championship that he won as well? There are all those accolades, but as a player, what stands out the most about the way that Jim Leland managed? Because obviously he had something special. Yeah, he. it was just the way he was able to communicate with guys and, and relate to guys. I think, you know, obviously with him, you know, he, he played never in the big leagues, kind of grinded a little bit in the minor leagues. And, he, you know, and, you know, everyone knowing Skip, like, you know, he was self-deprecating. Like, he always talked about how bad he was as a baseball player and all this kind of stuff. You know, so guys understood that he under- he knew the grind, and but he loved baseball so much that, you know, he, he he wanted to be able to coach. He wanted to be able to manage, and and he went through the grind as a manager. You know, so I think that made him incredibly relatable to, to, to players. You know, just that kind of salt of the earth, you know, understanding when he, you know, would speak to guys. You know, he didn't take any crap from 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 anyone, really. The buck kind of stopped with him, no matter if you were the the superstar on the team or if you were, you know, you know, back then the 25th guy on the team. You know, he treated everyone the same. And he always had that that good feel, not just what was going on in the clubhouse, but just a good feel in general on what was going on with his players, not only on the field, but and off the field. You know, to 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 know when they they might need you know a, a kick in the rear end or you know a pat on the back kind of thing, and and his timing was impeccable for those types of things. You know, I I personally owe owe Skip you know uh, a ton as far as like how my career ended up panning out. I mean, he he wanted me on the team, brought me up in 2009 in the middle of a pennant race after. You know, I had just been drafted. I had only been catching a, a year, 
and knowing that I was still learning the position, but he wanted me for my bat and knew that you know, he'd be able to protect me a little bit behind the plate until I you know, started to learn uh, the nuances a little bit better as far as catching. And just his overall advice, his his confidence in me was, was I mean, pivotal in those first, my first couple of years after I got called up, even even before then. I mean, that could, it even goes back to after I got drafted. I remember my first kind of experience right after the minor league season, after I got drafted, I went to instructional league in the fall. And and I remember Skip, Dombrowski, and my dad coming, you know, for a week to watch you know, all the instructional league games and, and everything that was going on. And, you know, just from that point, you know, him seeing like the improvement that I had to be able to say, okay, well, we should bring him to big league camp to give him that experience, even though I was only in big league camp for like a week before I got sent out, just that right there, you know, you know, brought so much confidence in me that, you know, he saw something that I didn't see yet, you know, as a player. And so, you know, that confidence that he had kind of, you know, I think helped me get to that point, you know, as a player. And then once I got to the big leagues, you know, realize that 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 I belonged and and make a career out of it. Yeah, he definitely had an incredible feel, and like you said, right to be able to instill that confidence in you. But again, like with Jim Leland, we you hear all these stories, right? The, the dancing in the clubhouse and dancing on the field sometimes, oh, yeah. and you know, smoking the cigarettes and all those kind of things. Like, do you have a favorite Jim Leland memory that you're going to cherish forever, or is it hard to pick one? No, it's it's definitely hard to pick one. I mean, and and I've I've probably forgot a few, and then. You know, every once in a while when I start thinking about it, then I remember another one that that comes up or or situation or something he said. You know, one of the one of the funny things that I, that I always enjoyed about Jim, like, you know, once the game was finished, like, you know, whether we're on the road or at home, I mean, he understood that everyone puts so much time into each game, right? That after the game, you know, he wanted guys to enjoy their life after as well, and you know, and. And he understood that. He, he understood that guys needed to be able to do that to kind of decompress from, you know, the rigors of playing every single day. So sometimes, like on the road, one of my favorite like memories and of Jim is we were in Kansas City, and we would stay at the Intercontinental there at the Plaza, which I'm sure you're familiar with. And after a game, everyone getting back to the hotel. Teams getting back to the hotel, and back at least back then at the lobby bar on the weekends they would have a piano player playing in the lobby bar. So every once in a while, guys would just kind of hang out there, have a drink or two, and then and then we'd head up to the rooms. But Jim would be down there after a drink or two singing Frank Sinatra with the guy at the piano. And, I mean, have just have the entire lobby just fixated on him, you know, singing, telling jokes and stuff like that. And he was just kind of like, you know, the, the life of the party. And, you know, that was that's one of something that I think I'll always remember. It's like vivid in my head, just like walking in and seeing him, he, seeing him at the end of the piano with the guy playing, singing Frank Sinatra. Was he a, was he a good singer or no? Skip was a good singer, believe it or not. Yeah, that's he beautiful. Sing. That's awesome. Yeah, he man. can that's, really sing. That's a great story. So, hey, switching gears to another electee, Joe Mauer, right? Did you think he was going to get into the Hall of Fame on his first ballot? Because it, it was really close, right? He got yeah. he got four more votes than he needed. Do you think he was getting in? I was hoping that he was going to get in. I wasn't sure if it was going to happen first ballot because obviously the way voting has gone probably over, you know, the the previous 20 years or so, you know, a guy like Joe probably gets in, but maybe, you know, maybe third or fourth ballot. But I think when you look at Joe's career from, you know, those first 10 years as a catcher, 
obviously the the last few years as a first baseman, he was able to compile some, you know, some total stats, but those first those ten years as a catcher, I mean, he did stuff that no other catcher in the history of the game was able to accomplish. I know playing against him, I thought, you know, from playing against him, I thought he was a Hall of Famer for sure. I think just his ability to impact the game at the plate and behind the plate was second to none during that decade. You know, there there is definitely some really good catchers. But when you look at Joe and what he was able to do and in those 10 years ca- uh, catching, no one no one came close to him. And, I mean, he was a nightmare to try to figure out how to get out. And then behind the plate, when you look at those Twins teams, one day, I mean, they won. Now, obviously, they didn't have the postseason, postseason success that they would have liked. But they were winning teams. And they probably never, you know, had like the, the you know, the best – rotation year in and year out. They never had like, you know, the the top of the end, the top end starters that maybe some of the other teams have, but they always had a really good staff. And I think, you know, a huge reason was Joe behind the plate, his preparation, his ability to game call and make adjustments throughout the game was invaluable to them. And then, you know, he at the plate, obviously that that's pretty self-explanatory what he was able to do with the bat because no other catcher during that time. And then when you look at it, from a historical standpoint, did what he did as a catcher. And with Joe, too, I mean, obviously, this is a guy who went 1-1 in 2001 and then obviously played his first MLB season in 2004. I think you might have still been in high school at that point. But as a baseball fan, right, as a baseball person, (laughs) was there buzz about this guy when he was breaking into the league? I mean, yeah, he was obviously being a a a, a first-round pick, first pick in the nation. You know, yes, for sure. There definitely was, I think, you know, and at any time you see, you know, a left-handed hitting catcher, you know, go not just one-one, but just in the first round, there's always going to be some some expectation there. And a guy, you know, obviously was a Twins fan, like Joe was, you know, playing in his home city, and a guy that was a three-sport, you know, uh, star as well in high school. You know, you have everything there. I think as as a, the Twins organization, you know, looking for who do we, you know, take and. Joe, I think, was you know probably a a, a no brainer for them at at that time. But breaking into the big leagues, you understood this guy kind of has everything to to become uh, a superstar. Maybe you know I don't think anybody, I don't think you, you can project project Hall of Famer, uh, but I think you know you definitely project the ability to have a good career, an All Star type career, and if you're able to stay healthy enough, you know then you have that a chance to make you know be a Hall of Fame type player like he did, but. He was for sure, you know, one of the, you know, highly touted guys coming in. Uh, like you said, I was a little bit younger, but, you know, knowing he was coming in the league and, and obviously he was a guy that I watched all the time as I came up, you know, got called up to, to Detroit because, like I said, he was like the standard during that time behind the plate. That's what I was going to ask next, too, because you made your LB debut in 2009 with the Tigers. That's the same year that Maurer won his MVP award. He hit, he hit 365 yeah. with 28 homers in 138 <laughs> games, and he played 109 of those games at catcher, which is just unbelievable, right? So what was it like for you to come to the big leagues, making that jump from double A, and you see Joe Maurer doing what he's doing on the other side? <laughs> yeah, you said I can't, Yeah, I got called up from double A. I had I'd been catching maybe, maybe at that point, it was about a year. And so the position was brand new to me. And you know, instantly like kind of thrown into a pennant race with the twins against the twins, you know, that and they have Joe Maurer behind the plate. So it was 
it was definitely a little bit intimidating for sure. You know, obviously being on, uh, you know, being on, on, on the Tigers and with the amount of veteran guys that we had, I was, I was okay. But I, I will say like, I remember my first, actually my second game in the big leagues was against the twins and just seeing like, I, I'll never forget, like actually seeing like my, that first day be Joe behind the plate and then looking down towards the first baseline and seeing more know at first, those two guys, obviously, I mean, you know, that at the time, I mean, it was, if one wasn't winning the MVP, the other one was, and, and they were kind of like larger than life, you know, figures, at least for me coming up. Now, I, I wouldn't say like, I was trying to, you know, figure out how I fit in here. I was like, all I was really trying to do is survive and, and, you know, and, and be able to help the Tigers at, at, and, and help the team win at, at, at any point. But when I came up, it was, especially like that second game, I, like it was vivid in my head, like, man. Mowers behind the plate, and I would look down first baseline, and, and more nose over there, and it was it was pretty cool. How much do you remember about that second game? I took some notes. Got to give credit where credit's due here, Alex. <laughs> well, I know I hit a home. You run. did. You knew who else had a home run <laughs> yeah, that? You know who else had a home run that game? Who did? Joe Mauer. There you go. <laughs> you know, you know that 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 doesn't surprise me. That I I don't I remember the home run that I hit, but I remember nothing about you know calling that game or what happened in that game. Because it, it was, and I think the whole the home run. Well, I know the home run that I hit with my first home run in the big leagues, and it was off a another South Florida guy who was a rookie at that time, Anthony Swarzak, and and we had played against each other in high school. So at that game, that's the only thing I remember. <laughs> yeah, just for just for listeners out there, people that want to know. Uh, Joe Maurer homered off Armando Galarraga in the top of the first, and then Alex Avila and Miguel Cabrera homered <laughs> in the bottom of the first, and. <laughs> Tigers ended up winning 10 to 8. Joe went four for five with three RBIs. You went two for four with four RBIs. So <laughs> you won up to him driving in the runs. But no, man, look, another another electee, Adrian Beltre, on mm-hmm. his first ballot. He had the prime of his career at the end of his career with the Texas Rangers from yeah. 2011 to 18. Obviously, he had some good seasons before that, but really turned it on in the, the back half. You guys saw the Rangers in the 2011 ALCS as well as a lot during the regular season. What stood out to you about the way that Beltre played the game? Well, he was, I mean, just an absolute stud and and a professional. You know, you you knew you knew nothing was getting by him at third. You know, and I mean, as a hitter, trying to figure him out, obviously depending on who was on the mound as far as what kind of stuff you had working that day to try to get hitters out. He had an incredible ability to kind of cover the entire plate. He never really had, at least during that time. During that stretch, he had in Texas, you know, he didn't really have a weakness. Really, there wasn't like something you can do inside or away on him to kind of limit the damage because he was just kind of a good overall hitter during that time. That during that stretch in Texas, I think earlier in his career, you can find some swing and miss a little bit more with him, get him to chase more. But as he got older, and and especially during that time in Texas, like you were saying towards the end of his career, he really understood you know, himself, what he could do and understood, you know, you know, what he could do damage with. But at the same time, he had the ability to to put the ball in play and have a two strike approach and and get his base hits. And if you made a mistake, he'd, he'd make you pay for it. So he, he didn't really have many holes. Uh, if any, a lot of times like he was, you know, getting himself out because when you look at those years, he was in for a high average and, and slugging pretty well. You know, so he was just kind of an all, overall like you know, complete player. Plus those Rangers team had, he had great protection too around him. You know, guys like 
you know, the Kinsler, Nelson Cruz, Josh Hamilton, uh, Michael Young. I mean, that, that was Mike Napoli. I mean, those that lineup year in and year out was was stacked. And you know, Vladimir Guerrero was on that team, was on some of the uh, one of those teams as well, to where you know there was just no place to breathe, you know, in that lineup. And uh, he definitely took advantage of that. But I mean, at that point, he was just such a smart player, you know, just high baseball IQ. I don't know if you know it, Evan, but my grandfather signed him with the Dodgers uh, out of the Dominican. Actually, two of two of the five Dominican Hall of Famers, my my grandfather signed Adrian and, and Pedro Martinez. So, wow, um, it was it was pretty amazing actually to you know see Adrian you know get elected. You know, I was super happy for him, and you know could you know there's not a de- more deserving guy than than, than Beltre. He's a he's a fantastic human being. Everybody loved, well loved, not just. You know, as a teammate, never got a chance to play with him. But even as a competitor playing against him, you know, you could just feel the love of the game, you know, and even though he wanted to beat you, you know, you know, he and and, and you wanted to beat him. You enjoyed playing against him. You enjoyed the competition, you know, because he, he, he made it fun. For sure. Probably should ask you about Todd Helton as well. Guy who played 17 years in the big leagues, all with the Rockies. You know, he gets in on his sixth year on the ballot. Not sure how much you watched him growing up and, and coming up through the minors and early in your career, but what do you think about him getting in? Yeah, I thought I thought for sure, you know, he should have gotten in as well. I thought I think this class is a really good class between, you know, Todd, Adrian, Joe, and 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 Skip getting in. So I think, you know, this class is is a really good class. I thought Todd for sure deserved it. He had an incredible career. I know a lot of people talk about Coors Field, but I think that's, I mean, again, like, yeah, he doesn't have, you know, the ability to say where he wants to go, I guess, you know, and free agency, he he decided that he wanted to stay there in Colorado, but that's where one of the 30 major league teams plays. So why are you going to, you know, knock a guy for being able to to play well there? But obviously he had the stats uh, on the road as well to be able to compile the type of career he did. And, you know, I did, I did, did get the opportunity to play against him at the end of his career, but growing up watching him, you know, he was just an incredible left-handed hitter who became a, a pretty good first baseman, you know, won a few, few gold gloves and just, you know, super happy that, you know, the Rockies, ha- you know, have another guy that, that that's going in uh, with the Rockies cap there with, you know, obviously with him and Larry Walker going in with his majority of his career in Colorado too. So he was a tremendous player to watch. And, you know, that, someone that I would actually watch on occasion, too, to try to help myself and my career, you know, just having a left-handed swing would watch his at-bats against against pitchers that I was uh, going to be facing, you know, before games. So, you know, it's, it's going to be a fun class. I'm actually hoping to be able to go to the inductions this summer. So it's, it, it's, it's a good class. I'm excited for it. That's awesome. Yeah, a lot of good insight, man. But before we let you go, I need to get your take on the Tigers in 2024. A lot of the players your father drafted, right? Spencer Torkelson, Riley yeah. Green, Kerry Carpenter. These guys are established dudes now in Detroit. Plus, you got prospects like Cole Keith and Jackson Job. They're coming soon. Jace Young is, a, is another name to know. Do you sense the hype? Do you sense kind of the vision, you know, finally starting to unfold? And what do you think about them heading into this season? Yeah, no, I'm I'm excited for the Tigers. I think you know over the last couple of years, you could see it, and you know watching their team and 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 seeing some of those guys in the minor leagues, you can see that the talent is there. It's just a matter of obviously you know getting getting those guys developed, getting those guys 
you know, to take kind of make, take that next step, kind of graduate to that next level. So I think for the last few years, you know, people were, were excited what could what could happen in Detroit. You know, what's coming down the line. You know, they had a nice year last year. I think you know some of the pickups. I think you know with Flaherty and, and Kenta Maeda. I love Kenta Maeda. I thought that was a really good sign. I caught him a little bit in Minnesota. He's kind of perfect for that. You know, rotation be able to eat up some innings. And I think now with with Scooble coming back. Fully healthy, you have Casey Mize back as well, uh, uh, and Manning hopefully being able to have put together a healthy season, a full healthy season. You could really kind of see the rotation kind of taking form, and then obviously with the continued development of you know guys like Spencer and and Riley and like you said Cole Keith, you know coming up, it should make for some exciting times, and hopefully you know uh, a team that Tigers fans can kind of rally around for a long time too, with 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 these young guys being able to contribute you know, in the big league. So I'm excited for him. I'm always, I, I mean, the, the old English D is always going to be a number one in, in my heart for sure. So there I'm always going to be rooting for him, you know, and a lot of those guys, like you said, you know, my dad, you know, drafted or signed, you know, over, over his time there. So just that added aspect of it, you know, to see those guys develop and kind of mature into the, the type of players that I think, you know, he envisioned that they would be is going to be exciting to, to kind of watch unfold over the next few years. Without a doubt. I have to ask about Cole Keith because, again, that is a you know guy that your dad went out and got. And it was a guy in the fifth round when they got him in the 2020 draft that people were really excited about and said, hey, look, like this might be the steal of the entire draft and the Tigers might have just got a real dude here. I don't know if you saw, but Cole Keith signed a, <laughs> a, a nice little contract extension there. Yeah. Um, six years through the 2029 season with club options for 2030. 2031 and 2032, it could be worth $82 million. <laughs> I, I'm not about Cold Keith specifically, but these types of contracts, we've seen more and more of them in baseball. Jackson Churio just got one with the Milwaukee Brewers. We're seeing it more often than maybe in the past. When you were coming up, like were these even sure. a thing? Did you ever think that that a guy with zero service time could get a contract like this? So, well, I was a fifth rounder too, and I didn't. I didn't see a contract extension <laughs> like nobody that. did back then. I feel like no, but no, 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 nobody did. It was extremely rare. I mean, I'm trying to think back now. Like if you know, early on, like my you know, time in the minors, going into my first year or two in the big leagues, if there was a guy that ended up signing an, uh, an extension like that before actually getting to the big leagues, and I mean, I don't think at least the first few years of my career, I don't remember someone doing that i mean i don't think i don't think it's i know some people have strong opinions one way or the other uh, about that especially probably on the player side too with you know a lot of players probably saying like you know you you shortchange yourself by by signing a contract like that but you know at the same time like you don't you don't know you know everyone's situation you know i think it's smart for teams to be able to explore those types of deals with guys that they kind of earmark as like hey this could be you know, someone that, that we want to stick around for the future because then, you know, there's some cost savings in there. But at the same time, if you're a player that is approached with a contract like that, I think you absolutely have to listen to it. It's That's a lot of money. No matter, you know, how much you think maybe in the future you might be shortchanging yourself, it's something to at least listen on and talk about if you're lucky enough that, you know, the the club sees you, you know, in, in, that, in, that, in that manner. So, you know, I don't, I don't see anything wrong with it. You know, like I said, because you don't you don't know everyone's situation, and 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 you know they might want that security going in, which is fine. Some of the guys may you know are are fine with taking a little bit more risk and and letting it play out, you know, which is fine. Which you know, 
But at the same time, I, I think it's smart for for both sides, whether you're a team or a player that is approached with a contract like that, to be able to, to at least discuss it. Because as a player, it gives you some security. At the same time, it'll give a, a, a team some cost savings there. And and in the end, usually, like if as a player, if you can work it out correctly or to, you know, you know, yes, to help a team down the road when you start getting arbitration, maybe your free agent years, but still work it to where you can still benefit from free agency after the fact. You know, I think it ends up being a lot of times a win-win for both sides. Um, you're always going to have your case where, you know, if you have injuries or, you know, then, you know, it might hurt the club a little bit there. That's, you know, where the risk is for the club. But then as a player too, obviously, if you go out and and you and you ball out and you and you and you crush it. Yeah, you might be leaving some money on the table, but you know, at the same time, you're kind of set for life. So, I don't think it's a big deal. I don't. I don't think it's something that you know people should have as strong of opinions as they do. You know, going into it for guys that are signing these types of deals. You know, I, I look at it like if you're a player that's, you know, good enough that and a t and and an organization you know sees you that way, I would listen for sure. And if I was a team, I'd do the same thing to try to you know find a way to save some money to be able to allocate that somewhere else. That's good insight from a guy who played 13 years in the show. I mean, for real, that's that's interesting. And yeah, I mean, I guess just to wrap up, what are your plans for this upcoming season? You've been awesome on MLB Network. Are you still going to you know do more of that? Any thoughts on coaching yet? I know you're enjoying the time with the family, but you know, you getting yeah. that itch or no? Yeah, on occasion I do. I mean, I have some good friends that are coaching now. Been asked over the last couple of years as far as my interest or kind of taking... Um, you know, some inventory as far as like, you know, what, what would be out there and, 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 you know, some people have called to see what my interest would be as far as coming back to get on the field. But like you said, I've, I've been enjoying a little more time at home and I will say the time, my time at MLB Network, I've had a blast, uh, never expected, you know, really throughout my career, I always expected to be on the field right away. But obviously with this opportunity, it was kind of a new challenge, which I was excited about going into i've been really enjoyed it i love you know the the people that i work with over there at at mlb network and it's been a fun time so going into this year that's kind of still the plan to be on mlb network and 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 do that and enjoy that you know how much i'm not sure we're still kind of you know figuring out the schedule over the course of the year and, and the summer but that's that's something that's that's in the future for sure coaching i'm not gonna you know i'm not gonna rule that out you know maybe sometime in the future for sure get back on the field no doubt about it. All right. Well, hey, look, this was a lot of fun. Thanks for joining. Hopefully we can do this again at some point in the future. Maybe if the Tigers are in the playoff race towards the end of the season, we can get you back on yeah, and talk about go. the AL Central. Sounds good, Evan. No, anytime. Awesome. Thanks a ton. Take care. Thank you. All right. That was Alex Avila talking about the Hall of Fame and, you know, a couple other things as well. We're going to dive in more to the contract extensions and maybe who could be next for the Tigers right after this break. Question two of the big two. Who do we think the next Tigers player or players will be to get a contract extension? I'm extremely excited to hear your viewpoint about this. I think Max Clark is my my guess on that one. That's just kind of where I'm at. I think Jackson Joe maybe could be a candidate for it at some point, but I think Max Clark is the guy that I'm circling on my big board as, hey, look, if, if they're going to give a contract to a guy before before he really breaks through, before he gets to the big leagues, 
I think the next guy on that list is Max Clark for, for a few reasons, right? I mean, we have to remember Spencer Torkelson is a Boris client. We have to remember that Jace Young is a Boris client. Jackson Job is a Boris client. Tarek Skubal is a Boris client. There are also other opinions that I have on all those players. We haven't seen a real full, healthy season of Jackson Job at his best yet. We'll see where he's at and, and if he's going to be able to, you know, do what he does at the highest level for a long time. I think he can be that guy. But again, pitchers are risky. There, there's a lot of, of, of injury risk involved with that. Plus, he's a Boris client. Tarek Skubal, I think there's, you know, injury risk with him. Significant injury risk, actually. And he's a Boris client. Spencer Torkelson, is the defense ever going to be good enough? And is the guy going to hit 40 bombs? Well, if he hits 40 bombs, he's probably going to want to go be a free agent as soon as he can. He's going to cash in an ARB and all that kind of stuff. And he's a Boris client. Now, the one guy I think that, you know, would have been a perfect candidate for me had he not had the injury issues is Riley Green, right? We need to see Riley Green healthy. The Tigers have talked about Riley Green needing to, you know, put in more work in the offseason to insulate his body, to come into camp ready to go, to try to stay healthy for the full season. Like that's something that's a real concern. If Riley Green never had any health concerns, I think he would be the perfect fit because he's not a Boris client. You know, he's he's with Apex, a different agency. And I think that he is the kind of guy who would probably sign an early contract. But again, I don't know if the Tigers are willing to take on that risk at this point because of the injuries and also too the fact that, you know, Riley Green is now into his big league career. He has service time under his belt. He's obviously going to be eyeing free agency if he proves that he can stay healthy. I don't really know if it's worth his while at this point to actually make that deal and sign a long-term extension and, and not get the chance to go out there and test free agency. So that's why when we're looking at all things and we're considering all things, I think Max Clark is probably the next guy to do it. Plus, I mean, he's a Harris guy. Scott Harris went out and picked him number three overall in the most recent draft for a reason. There's that connection there. If 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 Scott Harris sees what he what he wants to see and what he expects, yeah, I could see him dangling that for sure. And Max Clark also is not a Boris client. I think that's a good choice. I also think that it wouldn't shock me if they had approached Riley Green already and Riley Green said no. Doubt they approached Torkelson. It was too rocky of a road in year one and year two to want to make that commitment. So I doubt that happened. And it just doesn't seem like the Tigers and Chris Illich are going to be offering pitchers long-term contracts. It's way too risky a proposition anyways. It wouldn't be something that I would be doing if I owned a team think pitchers are, you know, an, an accident waiting to happen. And, you know, to pay them five and six years, you're likely all in the, not only do you have a diminished performance reliability level, you also configure over a five-year period. You are happy if you can get three to three and a half years worth of work from the five years. So uh, that's a dangerous aspect. But, you know, I think that a big part of, you know, this Cole Keith deal that they just made was they had somebody willing to take the money and they obviously took a discount in the long term relative to what, you know, they could get in the short term. So everybody's got their reason. They got their life to live. Most people like to gamble on themselves, especially if they're uber talented enough to be considered to buy out a year or two of arbitration. Rarely do players give up years two and three in arbitration. Year one, yeah. 
they they usually get some pretty serious money for giving up year two. But you know, I, I just don't see anybody until Max Clark and only if Max Clark or Kevin McGonigal play well enough to warrant the consideration. I just, you know, it's... And also, also, Mark, like you said, I think you make a great point, right? The player has to want to take the deal as well. So Max Clark, sure, he could be a stud, you know, and making his way up through double A and into triple A. And, you know, there could be a ton of hype around him. But at the same time, the player has to want to take the deal in these situations. And, you know, Max Clark, could he be a guy that wants to get to free agency ASAP and try to cash in on a huge deal as a you know, center fielder who hits for power and also has speed and, you know, has these five tools. Like to me, when, you know, you hear that, you think of a guy who could could really get paid some serious money, right? I mean, imagine if Luis Robert was becoming a free agent when he was supposed to be becoming a free agent, right? I mean, instead now he's locked up with, he's locked up with the White Sox through 2027, right? That's how it's going to be after those team options are picked up. So again, you have to have the player willing to do it. And in this case, Cole Keith was willing to do it banking on the fact that when he's age 31, he's going to be able to sign another mega deal. Well, we're going to have to wait and see on that. Look, the revenue stream of Major League Baseball over the next 24 months is going to be a very interesting thing to watch. I mean, when we talked with Kaplan last week, still have to figure out how they're going to monetize both streaming and local TV rights in the next 24 months. And... It's a big part of the salary structure going forward in baseball. So uh, a lot of unknowns, and I think contracts are going to be kind of a work in progress. You got 2026, the CBA expires. I mean, what do you think is going to happen? Yeah, I mean, we'll see on all that kind of stuff. Time will tell. Who knows? There's so many factors at play. One thing that I do want to mention on Cole Keith, and we can't forget about this, is you know this solidifies him now as the opening day second baseman, no question about it. And that's something that we can't forget about. If it wasn't a slam dunk before, it's a slam dunk now. And Cole Keith is a really talented player. And, and Tigers fans should be excited about him. This is a guy who hit 306 with 27 homers last year uh, for AA Erie, AAA Toledo. He walked at a 10.4% rate, struck out at a 21% rate. The guy makes contact. He creates damage. There's a lot of really good things that Cole Keith does. He's also a performer. I mean, a dude who went hit for the cycle in double-A Erie, and in that game, he went six for six with two homers. The Tigers promoted him to triple-A Toledo at the end of June, and he hit a home run in his first plate appearance for the Mud Hens. Like, this is a guy who steps up to the plate and has shown his ability to adjust at every level that he's come to. I have no doubts that he's going to perform in the big leagues, and I think he's going to be really, really good for the Tigers. That's why I think that this deal is such a steal, you know, for Scott Harris and the Tigers, because I think Colt Keith is going to be a very good baseball player for a very long time as long as he can stay healthy. That, that's the one big caveat for me. That, that's the one thing that I think would hold Keith, Cole Keith back from winning MVP awards, going to all-star games, is the health piece. And that's what it's going to come down to for me. But across the board, other than that, I mean, this, this, this guy's great. I mean, ranked 22nd on the prospects list in MLB Pipeline, ranked 28 by Baseball America. He's the real deal. It's going to be a lot of fun to watch him beginning opening day. Can't wait to watch Things to learn about him. I don't think there was even a remote chance that he wasn't going to be the Tigers' second baseman this year. Might have not been in the first two weeks of the season if they were going to manipulate service time, which I tend to doubt they would have. But I think you and I, for you know, since October when we've discussed 2024, we had him penciled in starting at second base. There's been no doubt between the two of us. Days of Peror, 
It's never doing anything less, but County Cole Keith being the starting second baseman hitting probably in the six holes. So, you know, any idea that that's not happening is kind of a, a fantasy on, you know, I understand why people didn't take it. All right. Otherwise, not a super busy Tigers week this week, aside from this particular event. What day is up in Petzl going down to Lakeland? Yeah, heading down to Lakeland, Super Bowl Sunday. So we still got one more episode to do with me back home before I get heading down there. I'll be jealous by then. Although I'm looking out my window, it's the end of January and I'm going to have no snow on the ground as of tomorrow. So I'm not really complaining too much to say the least. All right. Well, we got one more show to do. We'll see if we can come up with something fun. Maybe some things will happen this week. I want to remind everybody to rate, comment, and subscribe. Please do it, whether it's at Spotify, Apple, Stitcher, or anywhere possible that you might listen two days or more. And we appreciate you listening. I want to thank our producers, Kirk Crawford and Jeanette Delgado, the editor of the Free Press, and Nicole Avery Nichols. I want to also thank the world's greatest producer, Raman Chan. My grandson, Braden Michael Gorash, and for my partner, Evan Petzl, peace.